0: Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly spoiler-free reviews, discussion, games, and more. I'm your host, Aaron White. The first of our two films today is Untold: The Rise and Fall of And One from Netflix. It stars Jay Cohen, Gilbert, Seth Berger, Tom Austin, and Streetball legends The Professor, Hot Sauce, Skip to My Lou, The Main Event, Shane, the Dribbling Machine, and many more. It is directed by Kevin Wilson Jr. What's it about? Born out of the playgrounds of New York City, the And One mixtape tour took streetball to the masses, challenging conventions and picking up a team of basketball misfits along the way. The rise and fall of And One traces how the journey of three young friends with the dream of bringing greater acclaim to the game they loved connected with the underground art form of streetball and ended up flipping the billion-dollar basketball industry on its head. Now, if you're not familiar with And One probably really confused right now. This was a phenomenon that happened in my teen years into my early and mid-20s. And so I was right in that age group where it was interesting to me and I was paying attention to what was happening as they were attempting to sort of create this new, exciting brand of basketball That was completely different from the college and professional game that we already loved and watched. The story is about these three guys who during graduate school, they had this partnership and they wanted to do something related to basketball because they loved the sport so much and they were never going to be athletic enough to play the game and do that as a career. And they ended up creating this footwear and clothing company called And One. Initially, they bet on an NBA player who is up and coming, a new rookie, give him this huge contract. He's going to be their brand ambassador. They're going to take on the giants of the branding world. And it all goes to crap really quickly. And so in an effort to save what they've already accomplished so far, they end up pivoting. They get turned on to the streetball culture in New York City and the very famous outdoor Rucker Park courts where essentially players would play a completely different type of basketball game. In fact, it's often not even what you would consider legal basketball. There's double dribbling and all kinds of completely against basketball the rules, moves that are happening. But that's because streetball was really about a culture. It was about a style. And it was about electrifying the crowd and leaving them satisfied with what they saw. It was about entertaining. It was more about basketball players who essentially thought of themselves as artists. And they were creating this painting or this event that, that someone would be entertained by. It's almost a little bit like professional wrestling, where it's not quite the actual competitive version. There's an exaggeration and a style to it. There's a big personality. That's why they were given these streetball names instead of their real names. They would go by these nicknames, like I mentioned, of the Professor, Hot Sauce, Skip to My Lou, etc. And this is how they ended up getting famous. The company. Ends up making these mixtapes, which was like a YouTube video of the highlights of the crowd and all of the big plays that made everybody go ooh and ah and just an example of what the events were like. And they would be set to all sorts of modern day hip hop and rap music. And people just absolutely ate it up. It became this incredible, huge, big phenomenon. They went on tour ended up going nationwide, ended up even going international at times. And eventually it comes to an end. I was probably most fascinated with that part of the documentary. The whole thing is a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. It's a brisk 60 minutes. It's got an energetic pace to it with some bouncy music. It just kind of hums along and it never really lets up. It just moves, moves, moves. That's probably because there's not a lot of depth to it. It's fairly surface level. The doc is told as many stories are recounted through interviews with the three founders and with many of the players who were a big part of the And One brand. It's all fun and games, though, until Nike comes after you. Once that happens, the doc sort of kind of falters. We do get a little bit of a look into how it all went wrong and a little bit of the infighting that took place among players, among the co-founders, they eventually have to sell, and it just kind of falls apart pretty quickly. So the structure of the documentary is about 40, 45 minutes about the rise and maybe 15 minutes about the fall, if that, which just leaves us seeing that there's a lot of regret all around from everybody involved in this venture. It's a good documentary. It is uh, the next one up in Netflix's second Untold series. It follows The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist, which is actually going to release on August 19th, the week of this recording, and was discussed in last week's FF Plus episode. That was an outstanding documentary that shed light on a story in a new way. This is just more of like a time capsule document, in my opinion, because Not many people are going to really care much about AND1 anymore. I still have some socks that say AND1. I didn't even realize that. I discovered it the other day. I looked down at my feet and they said AND1 on them. I said, oh, wow, I guess they're still pumping out clothes, whoever owns this company. But they don't have the ability to go toe-to-toe with a Nike and a Reebok and Adidas anymore. And the street ball thing just doesn't exist in the same way as far as branded events go. ESPN isn't covering it anymore like they did at this one kind of cultural big moment in time. And so it's cool to learn about, but it's not the kind of documentary that is mind-blowing, life-changing. You're not going to come away feeling like you're supremely educated. It's just a neat look back at this thing that happened. If you personally were involved in this, if you followed it, if you know a little bit about it, I think you're probably going to be more excited for watching and learning about a little bit of the inner workings of how things came to be and how things went down. If you've never heard of it, maybe it'll be interesting to you because it'll be a fascinating story about something that you did not witness yourself. And you probably will look back on it and be like, wow, that was a thing? Holy cow, I'm surprised. I don't know. But it's definitely worth a watch. I just don't think that it is by any means top tier for this untold series. And it's one of the simpler stories that has been told so far. It'll be available streaming on Netflix on August 23rd. The other film releasing this week that I'm reviewing is Beast from Universal Pictures. It stars Idris Elba, Charlto Copley, Iyana Holly, and Leah Sava Jeffries. It is directed by Balthazar Cormaker and it is written by Ryan Engle from an original story by Jamie Primack Sullivan. What's it about? A recently widowed husband returns to South Africa where he first met his wife on a long-planned trip with his two young daughters to a game reserve managed by an old family friend and fellow wildlife biologist. Soon, a ferocious man-hunting lion begins attacking them and killing anyone in his path. That synopsis really does express how this movie goes they show up in the savannah in the wildlife preserve they ride out into the country and then bam the lion attacks and that's basically the rest of the movie as a survival film i like that it's a tight 90 minute movie it gets you in it gets you out and it gives you some fun idris elba is always so magnetic and watchable and I think that he carries this a lot on his shoulders, but I also really like Charlto Copley. And I think he plays well off Idris as kind of a, a friend and this person who also had a relationship with the Idris Elba characters. Now, I can't even remember his name, with the dad's wife who has passed away. So they clearly have this history The two daughters, Colstralto Copley's character, Uncle Martin, it's a really sweet relationship. And I think the relationship between all four, but specifically the relationship between Idris Elba and his daughters, is what really is the thing that makes this a little better than average. There's a great dynamic here. Both of the girls feel natural as can be with regards to how teenagers act right now in this day and age they both have their own unique personality traits they're both have their own hobbies their own career interests and their own way of dealing with their mother's death and their own different relationship with their dad when this kicks off the movie does deliver us some backstory for that and then it kind of gives you a little bit of nuggets as their relationship progresses while they're dealing with trying to survive. And I just really liked watching this. I liked seeing a black dad even, specifically, who is a single parent protecting his two daughters. And what's extra cool is that Elba is not a very capable person in this movie. He's not the big, bad, like super hunky, buffed out dude. He's not a good shot. He probably should never get to play Deadshot again, honestly. Hopefully they don't see this footage because he can't use a weapon capably and he's just out there trying to do his best. He's a doctor, which is a little bit convenient for story purposes, as you can probably expect. But he wants to connect with them. He wants them to understand the decisions he made, the way that things went down between he and his wife. Leading up to her death, and he wants to have a loving relationship with them. He wants to be connected to them, and and that is the thing that permeates the storytelling throughout. And I like that a lot. One of the other things I really liked was uh, Philippe Rousselot is the DP, and I l- thought that the way the film was shot, it looks great. There's not a ton of wide nature documentary style savanna shots. But what it does is it uses a lot of one takes to get really up close on the characters. And at all times, when we're in survival mode, you really feel the tension being ratcheted up. You feel the claustrophobia of them being trapped and hunted. And the camera moves with the characters. It weaves and turns as they go. And it, it really gives you this sense of almost fear like they have that as soon as they look a different direction something's going to be there the lion's going to be there or you know something's going to happen to them there's always danger right around the corner so i thought that the way it was shot did a phenomenal job of sucking you in and letting you experience it as if you were with the characters the lion it's cgi so let's be real that's going to be hit and miss okay there are moments where it looks a little bit fake there are plenty of times though that it works out just fine for the most part it moves and acts just like you would expect an extra large and extra scary and mean lion to act it's really dangerous looking like it is absolutely terrifying and i can understand why anyone would be out of their depth, trying to deal with this situation. The things that this lion does to humans are appropriately gnarly. There's a lot of blood. There is some bone and there's a lot of very deep gashing of skin. There's not a lot of guts, thankfully. So that was nice, but it is pretty visceral and it doesn't skirt around the reality that you would actually face if you were in a situation like this against a beast out in nature in its natural environment. And this is showing us how humans would be very unprepared to defend themselves and handle something like this. Cormaker is very adept at telling stories like this about humans facing off against nature and the elements. He's previously directed Adrift, a movie I really like about a woman getting lost out at sea, Uh, a movie called The Deep, which is about a fisherman who is trying to survive in a freezing ocean, and then Everest, which is a favorite of mine uh, about a couple of crews trying to climb, a couple of expeditions trying to climb the world's tallest mountain. I never get the sense that Cornmaker wants us to think the lion is bad, he just wants to show the lion as a product of its environment, which also has something to do with poachers. And this is nature. This is the lion doing what the lion has learned to do in order to survive. If it wasn't taking out humans that we got to know and care about, you'd almost root for the lion because it kind of feels like Simba and it's like a lion that is dealing with trauma. He's had all these horrible things happen to him in his life. And so now he's pushed past the breaking point and he's lashing out. He needs therapy, guys. But instead, his therapy is murder. And there's a lot of it. The finale of the movie really sort of sinks it for me because it goes out on a little bit of a whimper, in my opinion. It fell flat. Instead of ratcheting up to something that I felt was a worthy, like, last moment, it goes for this ridiculous spectacle for spectacle's sake. Now, there's a tactical decision made that leads to this final scene. And I loved the idea behind it. The execution just made it look really silly on the screen. I'm pretty sure at one point that I even noticed a dummy stand in instead of an actor that was interacting with the lion. And it kind of took me out of it there because it didn't any longer look natural. And it just became so overdone and unbelievable that I was like, okay, it's hard for me to, enjoy this because up until that moment most of the things that had happened had been fairly realistic obviously the lion takes some damage and keeps on ticking but that's because he's a big bad beast and that's what they do in movies like this but yeah the ending was a little off for me it also comes very abruptly it almost felt like someone was checking their watch and went, oh no, we only have five minutes left. Uh We got to rush to the end of the movie and complete this thing. Let's wrap things up. Let's go. Let's go. And just kind of cut out a whole bunch of things in order to quickly make it all end. The movie also sometimes can be a little too heavy on going into the healing process of Idris Elba's character and him trying to move on after this wife he has passed on Coremaker uses some dreamlike sequences and they're not bad, but they're a little bit distracting tonally because the movie is usually progressing at a very high tension level and they bring it down. I'm sure that was intentional. And I mean, that's, that's fine. They just didn't really work for me that well. They kind of remind me of some of the things he's done in other movies. I, I want to say there's some like imaginary sequences that take place similar to this in a drift as well. And then it's just not a deep movie. This is not something like The Grey, where you're going to get a a philosophical or psychological profile of a human in this situation. This is just a survival story. It's a dad and some girls stuck in a bad situation and him doing everything he can to get them out of there alive. It's a little heavy-handed. At the beginning, there is even a character wearing a Jurassic Park shirt while on a wildlife preserve where an animal is going to get loose and try to kill them beast is going to be available in theaters on August the 19th and i very much recommend it i think it's a good movie a fun movie i think most teens will be able to enjoy this one just fine it's quick it's great dad movie i really do think that it's also going to be something i forget about very quickly and not going to be something I ever feel the need to probably revisit. If I wanted to watch a movie like this, I'm probably going to lean towards Jaws and The Gray. But movies like this are fun. Uh, there's, it kind of falls in that area along with a movie like Crawl as well as another one. They're a good time and there is a place for that. It's also one that I wouldn't necessarily say needs to be seen in the cinema either. So if you can't make a theater trip out for this, it's bound to come to video on demand streaming or some kind of online service at some point. And it would be fine to just wait for that, but worth checking out when it does. Well, that's it for this episode of FF Plus. Hopefully I've helped you make a decision on a future viewing. If you do ever check out one of the films that I review, I would love to hear from you. You can find me on social media, Twitter, letterboxed pretty much everywhere using the username Aaron L. White. That's A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling film.